0: Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at JohnDeere.com get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Money Girl podcast, a show that helps you master your money so you can live rich and love the journey. My name is Laura Adams. I'm a personal finance expert, author, speaker, and spokesperson. You can learn more about me at lauradadams.com everyone wants to cut taxes, right? We don't want to pay more than we have to, and you can't avoid them. But fortunately, there are many ways to legally pay less so you keep more of your hard-earned money. So that's what we're going to cover in this show. I'll answer six questions about taxes that came in from Money Girl readers, listeners, and private Facebook group members, plus a bonus question from a Twitter follower. This Q&A will help you understand how to pay less tax defer it, or to boost your tax refund every year. So we have a lot to cover today. I'm probably covering more in this show than I should, but I wanted to make sure to cover all of the recent questions that have come in. This is episode number 434 called Financial Q&A, Tips to Pay Less Tax or Get a Bigger Refund. So let's jump right in. Question number one comes from Chesley. She says, My W-4 says that I'm married, but I've actually been divorced for a few years. Is it important to update that? Or is the status that I put on my tax return what really matters? Thanks, Chesley. The filing status you enter on your tax return is what's most important because it determines how much tax you'll owe. However, if you're an employee, you should update your W-4 anytime you have a life change, such as getting married or divorced, having a child, or earning more or less income. In fact, the IRS says you're supposed to make W-4 updates within 10 days after a major life event. The amount of tax your employer withholds from your pay depends on your income and the information you submit on your W-4, such as your marital status and how many allowances you have. If your W-4 doesn't accurately reflect your situation, you could have too little or too much tax withheld. Not paying enough means you could get a big unexpected tax bill. Or if you overpay during the year, you'll end up with a tax refund. Now, while getting a refund might sound good, it simply means that you gave Uncle Sam an interest-free loan on your money throughout the year instead of using it for your own good. So be sure to adjust your withholding if you get big tax refunds every year. That's an easy way to give yourself a raise. Save or invest the money instead of letting the government use it. However, your withholding typically won't be correct down to the penny. That's because the worksheets don't account for every possible situation, such as having additional taxable income from interest, dividends, alimony, unemployment compensation, or self-employment income. You can update your withholding any time during the year by completing IRS Form w 4 and submitting it to your employer. If you need help, use the IRS Withholding Calculator. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Or ask your human resources or payroll department. Question number two comes from Penny, who's in my Dominate Your Dollars private Facebook group. She says, can you use a kid's chore money to fund a Roth IRA on his or her behalf? Thanks, Penny. This is a common question because the rules for contributing to a traditional or a Roth IRA say that you can have one at any age. So on the surface, it seems like a child could qualify for an IRA if they earn an allowance, have babysitting income, or get cash gifts from grandparents on holidays. But it's not quite that simple because the IRS says you must have taxable compensation during the year to qualify for an IRA. That means you have to prove it by being employed and receiving a W-2 or by filing taxes on business income. You can't double dip by not paying tax on income to begin with and also sheltering it from additional tax inside an IRA. If a child provides services like babysitting, mowing lawns, or doing household chores, that qualifies him or her as being self-employed. But you have to report their net earnings by filing Form 1040 and also submitting either Schedule C or Schedule C-E-Z Plus, if a child has over $400 in net earnings, you must also pay self-employment tax by submitting Schedule SE. So, you're going to need to keep careful records about revenue and expenses for each job that a child has and pay tax on his or her net profit. For instance, if a child makes $2,000 this year mowing lawns for neighbors and pays $300 to service the lawnmower, her net earnings are $1,700 she would be eligible to contribute up to $1,700 in either a traditional or a Roth IRA this year if you claim that income. Let's say your son earns $3,000 working a summer job as a busboy in a restaurant. As long as his W-2 reflects that amount of income, he's eligible to contribute up to $3,000 in an IRA. But what if your child spends all of his or her money or wants to save it to buy a car? Well, the child's money doesn't have to be used to fund the account. You or anyone else can fund an IRA that's in your child's name on his or her behalf. However, you can't contribute more than the child's actual earnings, which was $3,000 for the son who had the summer job in my last example, even though the maximum IRA contribution for 2016 is 5500 Not all investment companies allow minors to open up an IRA, but don't let that stop you because there are plenty that do. I'll include some recommendations in the transcript for this show on the Money Girl page at QuickAndDirtyTips.com. Roth IRAs are great options for young people. You can listen to show number 404 called Six FAQs About Roth Retirement Accounts to learn more. Question number three comes from Mark. He says, I have a new health savings account, or HSA, and will max it out this year in addition to fully funding my retirement accounts. But I rarely have medical expenses, so should I just treat the HSA like another tax-advantaged retirement account? Also, can I make a prior year contribution for 2015, even though the account wasn't open until 2016? Thanks, Mark. I like the way you're thinking because you're trying to make the most of every tax-advantaged account that you can get your hands on. I've done several podcasts on health savings accounts. If you want to learn more, I recommend listening to show number 391 called How to Save Money on Healthcare with an HSA. The beauty of an HSA is that you can use it to pay for qualified medical expenses on a tax-free basis, but you never have to spend the money. That's right. You can max it out every year and the growing balance simply rolls over from year to year without penalty. Unlike a flexible spending arrangement or FSA, there's no deadline to spend the money in an HSA. Even if you cancel your high deductible health plan, which is a requirement to open up and contribute to an HSA, you can still use money in an HSA indefinitely to pay for medical expenses tax free. Just be sure that you won't need to tap the account because if you spend HSA money on anything other than qualified medical expenses and you're younger than age 65, you must pay income tax plus an additional 20% penalty on the amounts. If you're like Mark and anticipate still having funds in an HSA in the future, that's fine because it morphs into something like a retirement account. After you turn 65, you can spend HSA money for non-medical expenses without penalty. However, you do have to pay ordinary income tax on those amounts, which is similar to how it works when you take distributions from a traditional IRA in retirement. So the answer to Mark's question is that treating an HSA like a retirement account is a great strategy. It's there for you if you have medical expenses, but you're not penalized if you don't use it. When you initially open the account, you can only make contributions for the current year, not a prior one. Plus, you can't use HSA funds to pay for a medical expense you incurred before the account was officially open. For instance, if you open and fund an HSA in January 2016, you can't use the money to pay for a medical procedure that you had back in the fall of 2015. For 2016, if you have a high-deductible health plan, you can contribute up to $3,350 to an HSA for an individual policy, or up to $6,650 if you have a family policy. If you're over age 55, you can contribute an additional $1,000 to an HSA when you have either type of health plan. Okay, moving on to question number four. This one comes from Mike. He says, I recently changed jobs and my new employer doesn't offer health insurance for 90 days. Besides putting myself in financial risk, are there tax consequences if I don't have coverage during the waiting period? Thanks, Mike. The Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, requires every American to have health insurance, no matter your age, income, or employment situation. If you don't have coverage, you typically have to pay a penalty that's collected by the IRS. It's calculated in two ways, as a percentage of income and as a flat fee. You have to pay whichever is higher. The penalty rates have increased by set amounts over the past few years and will be adjusted for inflation in the future. For 2016, the penalty is 2.5% of annual household taxable income or a flat rate of $695 per person. However, there are some exceptions and hardships that allow you to legally avoid the penalty. One of them is having a short lapse of coverage that's no more than two consecutive months. You're considered covered even if you had a qualifying health plan for one day during a month. For example, if you didn't have coverage from January 2nd to April 15 your coverage gap was only two months, February and March. You'd qualify for the exemption and would not have to pay a health care penalty. But if Mike's gap is a full three months or more, he'll have to pay a penalty for every day that he's uninsured. And as he mentioned, going without a health plan is dangerous for your physical as well as your financial well-being. To know how the Obamacare penalty will affect your taxes and if you qualify for an exemption, Check out the H&R Block ACA tax calculator at hrblock.com. Also, if you need healthcare, you can shop and compare plans by starting at healthcare.gov. Question number 5 comes from Tammy. She says, "I recently inherited $25,000 and want to invest it in a 401k. What are the tax consequences of doing that?" This episode is brought to you by AARP. Hey there, I want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts, Freakonomics Radio. Every week, host and best-selling author Stephen Dubner dives into the hidden side of business, economics, and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, and Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics, like why the best employees can make the worst bosses and how whales went from being economic engines to environmental icons. If you're a curious person looking to better understand the world around you, you'll find everything you're looking for on Freakonomics Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to Tammy's question about investing in a 401k. In order to have a 401k, you must be employed by a company that offers it or be self-employed and set up a solo 401k for yourself. Since Tammy didn't mention her employment status, I'll cover both options. If you can participate in a 401k at work, your contributions can only come through payroll deductions. In other words, you can't just make a lump sum deposit directly into a workplace plan, like you can with many other types of retirement accounts. Once you're enrolled in an employer's 401k, you can typically contribute as much as 90% of your paycheck to the plan. For instance, if your gross pay is $1000, you could elect to contribute 900 to your 401k. For 2016, the most you can contribute to a 401k is $18,000 or 24,000 if you're over age 50. So, depending on her age, Tammy could invest $25,000 through payroll deductions over a year or two. She would contribute as much as possible from her paycheck and then use her inheritance to pay the monthly bills. Now, if Tammy does not have a job that offers a 401k, she could invest her inheritance in a traditional or a Roth IRA. However, for 2016, the most you can contribute is $5,500, or 6,500 if you're over age 50. So it would take her a few years to fully invest the entire 25,000. The other option I mentioned is called a solo 401k, which is a plan Tammy can use if she's self-employed, either on a full-time or part-time basis and has no employees other than a spouse. Now, if she does have employees, a good option would be to invest through a SEP IRA. I'm not gonna go into the details about these retirement options when you're self-employed, but if you're interested and wanna learn more, be sure to listen to podcast number 422 called Five Retirement Options When You're Self-Employed. The tax consequences of investing through a 401k or any type of retirement account are terrific because you cut the amount of tax you have to pay and save money. Traditional accounts give you an upfront tax deduction in the current year and allow you to avoid all taxes until you take withdrawals in retirement. On the other hand, Roth accounts work a little differently. They require you to pay tax on your contributions in the current year, but allow you to take withdrawals of contributions and earnings in retirement that are completely tax-free. The only downside to having a retirement account is that if you want to take money out of it before reaching the official retirement age of 59 and a half, you may have to pay income tax plus a 10% early withdrawal penalty. Okay, moving on to question number six. This one comes from Anita. She says, I've been contributing to a flexible spending arrangement or FSA for years and I'm starting on a high-deductible health plan with an HSA. Is it true that contributions to these types of accounts reduce your Social Security earnings for the year and therefore your benefits in retirement? Anita, this is a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked it before. Different types of deductions employers take from your paycheck on a pre-tax basis are handled in different ways. Some reduce all of your taxes, which include federal income tax, State income tax, Social Security tax, and Medicare tax. And some reduce your federal and state income taxes only. The most common payroll deductions are for 401k contributions, they reduce your income taxes only which means you still have to pay Social Security and Medicare taxes on your gross earnings. And by the way, Social Security and Medicare taxes are collectively known as FICA. That stands for Federal Insurance Contributions Act. So you may see it listed as FICA on your pay stub. These are split 50-50 between employers and employees. Anita, you're correct in saying that deductions from your paycheck for FSA or HSA contributions are generally not subject to any payroll taxes. That means you save money on taxes, including Social Security and Medicare. However, these contributions also lower the earnings that are reported to the Social Security Administration for purposes of calculating your future retirement payment. That means your future Social Security benefits may be slightly reduced if you participate in an FSA or an HSA at work. While FSA contributions are always made through employer payroll deductions, you can contribute to an HSA on your own And then take a deduction for your total annual contributions when you file your taxes. That's the best way to handle HSA contributions, so you continue to pay into your Social Security taxes at work. However, that's just not an option when you participate in an FSA. Okay, I know that's a little confusing, but hopefully you followed me on that one. And our very last question is a bonus it comes from a Twitter follower at TRAWR who says, a good topic for your podcast would be tips on how to maximize your tax refund. Thanks so much. That's absolutely what I wanted to do with this show. And fortunately, there are many ways to cut your taxes so you pay less or get a bigger tax refund. One way is to maximize your tax deductions, which reduces your taxable income and therefore the tax you have to pay. So in order to do that, I want you to get familiar with the complete list of deductions. These are found on Schedule A. I'll put a link to that in the notes for this show on the Money Girl page at quickanddirtytips.com. Some of the deductions include medical expenses, having a home office, home mortgage interest, and making charitable contributions. Another tip to pay less tax is to defer your tax or to delay it whenever possible. You can use traditional retirement accounts, such as a traditional IRA or a 401k, to defer tax on contributions and earnings in the account until sometime in the future. So make a goal to increase your retirement savings every year. Also, don't forget that if you're married and don't work, You can also have a spousal IRA if you file taxes jointly. And I'll put a link to more information about a spousal IRA in the notes for this show. A big thanks to everyone who submitted questions that I covered in the show. Also, you've submitted some terrific five-star reviews recently in iTunes that I really, really appreciate. I read every one of them, and it also helps the show stay visible on iTunes so more people can find us and get the financial tips and advice they need to live rich and love the journey. That's all for now. I'll talk to you next week, courtesy of Money Girl, your guide to a richer life.